there are a few things in life that can come close to the power, the peace, and the contentment that comes from a long-term, committed, and real relationship. Becoming the evolved man or woman that attracts the evolved mate that you want takes work. And today's guest is going to give you some insight into how. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast. Evolve your body, evolve your mind, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. And now it's time to disrupt. And with that, folks, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve Podcast. Joining me today from his home in beautiful, rainy Oberlin, Ohio, the most interesting man that I know is my co-host, W. Miles Riley. Welcome, Miles. Thank you, Steve. It's good to see you, as always, and kind of ready for a very exciting, exciting podcast today. Uh, listeners, get your pen and pencils out. Take some notes. Take I think this is going to be very eye-opening. I mean, you and I talk uh, offline regularly about a lot of these topics, <laughs> relationships. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, there's just so many great things. And so we are really fortunate to be joined by Dr. Taylor Burroughs, uh, somebody who I have followed her content for quite some time and really... I, there's there's a few people that I follow that every once in a while I just get this oh yeah that was awesome you know like a punch in the face punch in the gut type of comment that just is so cool so Dr Taylor Burroughs is a retired mental health counselor and a retired marriage couples and family therapist who's been helping people grow and get healthy for the over uh, 17 years she has a PhD in marriage couples and family counseling. And Taylor says, I retired in April of 2019 when I started working as an independent consultant online. Now I can work from anywhere in the world and with anyone who aligns with my values. Dr. Taylor Burroughs, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Evolve Podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here, gentlemen. Yeah, I, have a, I have a quick question. Can you really retire from what you do? It just seems like the minute you officially put it down, everybody still comes to you with questions because they know what you've done for so long. So can you really retire from that? Well, yeah, there's a huge difference between healthcare practice and just functioning as a an, an consultant coach. I don't really prefer the term coach, but that's just kind of what people know Um I function as, but basically healthcare is so regulated and there's yes. a very specific treatment protocol that you have to have with clients and just the relationship that you have with clients exactly like how okay. it shows up in the, in the treatment is very different. So okay. my clients now, we have a much more personal relationship, more like friends in a lot of ways. That's great. What, what's that new show uh, with Jason Siegel on Oh, Shrinked. I Shrinked. Think. Yeah, my wife and I just started Something watching like that? that. Yeah, I think so. I can't remember the name of it. I, we were laughing at it the other day uh, as you're talking about this re professional yes. relationship. And I think many counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, they know they have to have these certain boundaries. Um, and he certainly crosses those boundaries in that show. Um, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah, know how. He will lose his license in real life. <laughs> I would imagine. I would imagine. I, I love how he uh, how that whole thing plays out there. Um, you put out there uh, on your on all of your social media that you are a vetting specialist. Let's dive in there first and foremost. What is vetting and what is a vetting specialist? 
Sure. Well, I'll give you a little bit of background too, because I think it segues well talking about healthcare and practicing officially under a license. Uh, marriage and family therapy is obviously coming at the problem at the end, right? When typically sort of yeah. the proverbial, you know, crap hits the fan and people come in and it's like a Hail Mary attempt at trying to avoid divorce or figure out how to divorce amicably or something. So considering I left the profession, there were things that I, I wasn't fulfilled by. And one of them was this, is I really wanted to help people mm. avoid this fate to begin with. And so vetting is the answer to that. It's really about prevention. And every time someone cynical comes to me and talks about how marriage is dead and, and it's such a, a liability and don't pursue marriage because it doesn't make you happy and the divorce rate, this and that, I remind them that those statistics are all based on couples that weren't properly vetted. And so the, 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 they're not controlling for health and compatibility uh, at all. <laughs> they're just really looking at how many marriages end in divorce. So this way, um, if you were to do those statistics with people who were well vetted and confirmed compatibility before they got married, I'm sure that number would be a, a much lower one. That's a great perspective. And I think a lot of the times people use similar statistics like in business, right? They say, oh, this number of businesses, this percentage of businesses fail. Well, I've seen a lot of people start businesses that have no right to start a business because they have no idea how to vet whether or not what they're putting out there into the world is going to be successful. So what a really cool concept. And I love the fact that you're talking about this proactive approach rather than a reactive approach of, all right, we're almost completely broken and falling apart. How do we vet ahead of time? So walk us through what are sure. some of the things that people need to think about when they are vetting whether or not this is a great relationship to get into? Well, I didn't really answer your question yet. So vetting in particular, obviously, it started from a more corporate setting, like how to vet for employees and recruitment yeah. processes. Okay. Basically, vetting is about uh, meeting your own criteria. It's about assessing a connection, because what I like to do is depersonalize it a bit, because a lot of people feel like it's very judgmental of a person, but you're not necessarily just vetting the person. You're vetting your relationship dynamic with that person. Okay. So it, it, it helps you see it from a more objective standpoint. So as you are assessing a connection that you have for compatibility, slowly, it's about slowing down the process. Like first and foremost, that's really important to slow down the process so that you don't allow your emotions whether that's the love aspect or the lust aspect mm. to lead the way and force you to sort of escalate the situation before you have clarified compatibility and vetted them, like your specific connection for viability, right? For the long haul. So being able to slow that down and organically progress after you feel like your certain confidence through the stages of relationship development, then that allows you to uh, properly vet the person, but most importantly, the connection that you have. Does it have what it takes 
to be a marriage? Does it have what it takes to commit to, to invest further in, whether that's moving in together or having a child or getting married or buying a house together, having those merged finances. It's all like all can be considered a liability and it is definitely an investment if you don't, um, or so you have to, in my opinion, vet properly for that. But vetting also applies to just everything. It's a whole worldview. It's a paradigm shift. Right, right. I think that's what most people have realized is that I can do this with everything now. I mean, as big or small as, as you can think of, you know, like what kind of, I, I did this example once with clients because they weren't quite ca- catching the concept. I compared it to picking like my favorite it was like almond milk or something, something really mundane. But like I showed them like all the different like milks that I picked up at the store and why I picked this one, like the cost and the taste and just like, you know, kind of using that as an analogy, but you can use the vetting system with anything. So this was actually pretty brilliant. This is brilliant because absolutely, if you look at it, if you look at it from a historical perspective, this is an evolved thing. Right. Like I, you know, I can for some reason I could that the comedy would be looking at somebody in the 1800s and you know they're going to date and somebody says, "Well, did you vet him or did you vet her?" And they're looking at you like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah. Like nobody does that. So yeah. this is an evolved principle and you had something on your Instagram about self-vetting, which I thought was phenomenal. <laughs> well, speak more on that? Yes, I can. What I mean by that is we are the tool of vetting, right? That that does the vetting. So we have to calibrate and clarify what we stand for, what we're looking for. It can't just be some kind of, I don't know, random wish list we come up with. It has to be based on who we are as an authentic, healthy, aligned, congruent individual, right? And so basically it, the person that you're looking for is a complement to who you are at your best. So that's why I talk about the ideal self. So it's not just some, I don't know, fantasy or idealistic person you invent in your head that you're looking for. It's based on a complementary, you know, vision of who you are. So they're going to be things that are the same. So compatibility is made up of important things that you have to share and important things that you have to differ on. So there has to be that contrast on certain things and that similarity uh, on certain things. I love how you talk about that you are the tool, you are the vetting tool. And so you have to understand yourself, right? You've got to have a deep sense of who you are at your uh, your deepest core. I mean, this, this harkens back, it's really resonating with me because it harkens back to maybe when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old. I always knew I wanted to get married and have kids, have this you know long-term relationship. And so I sat down, I don't know where I got the idea from, but I sat down and said, okay, well, what qualities am I, would I be looking for um, in a spouse? And then in order to attract that type of spouse, what qualities do I need to have? Do those qualities really align with who I am? And um, I remember when my wife and I got engaged, and then as we were getting closer to the marriage, I uh, had forgotten about that list, but I'd stuck it away or those two lists. I pulled them out and I looked and I checked the boxes on all of them. And I thought, okay, I might not be the most evolved, uh, aspects of all of these, but there's a spark of potential here. Uh, there's some intent, (laughs) there's some growth that needs to happen, which I think is pretty normal. And, uh, that, that, that core has been, 
the same core for 25 plus years as we have continued to grow and evolve together. So I, I really love how you're talking about starting with yourself and, and understanding that you are the tool. Talk about what you mentioned earlier with slowing the process down, because I, I that resonated with me too. Take the emotion out of it. So it's not just, oh, I've fallen in love or I have this lust, but slow the process down to use some logic, to create some clarity. Um, can you walk us through what you do to make this thing not fall into a Romeo Juliet type of situation? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it, I know it, just in languaging about it, like sometimes I'll say remove the emotions, but it's not really removal. You know, sure, it's just sure. about bringing other things into focus as well. So it's it's really about bringing all three factors and two of them are feelings based. So some people criticize my system saying it's so clinical and so cold. And, you know, I'm like, no, it's actually only one third based on that. It's just right. the one third right. people mostly neglect. So I try to emphasize it because that's the most important part to teach. Yeah. But yes, the, the love and the desire, which is chemistry, that's what people mostly, <laughs> where they get into trouble. Like you said, they either start falling in love too quickly, or they're just, you know, chasing that high of attraction and chemistry, and they start falling into relationships with people or mm -hmm. sexual relationships, or, you know, want to propose in three months or less or something crazy. And uh, all of that is very romantic. <laughs> Go ahead. Could you stop talking about me like that? So like, so <laughs> Uh oh, we need to do like a before and after, like yes. the vetting yeah. system. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, um, one of the most important things that I help people do is exit the dating market, you know, as you know it, like the modern mm. dating market. So a lot of times that requires getting off dating apps. Uh, I don't, I definitely encourage people to get off of them, but I'm not you know, saying like, I will not work with you if you are on dating apps, or I'll think that you are a lost cause. If you're on dating apps, there are, you know, people that I work with that do still stay on dating apps, but I ask them to reframe how they use dating apps because okay. they should be like the sole uh, funnel for you to meet people. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. Uh, but I think the most important one to point out that you probably don't hear about a lot. I think you people have heard a bit about like the attachment <laughs> issues with people that find themselves on dating apps are usually the, you know, the avoidant or anxious attachers. And so it's like, you know, the worst combination of people seeking each other out on dating apps. But what I see is the biggest problem is there is an implicit value system in the creation and use of dating apps that you are supposed to be spinning plates, like dating multiple people casually at once. Oh, interesting like perspective. Just, okay. It's an implicit factor, right? Like everyone yeah. who you're going to be matching with is operating under the guise that you're comfortable with them seeing other people. Yeah. Right? What a what a fascinating idea. Never thought, I mean, I've never used a dating app, obviously, but uh, I... What a fascinating concept, because not only would you potentially be seeing many other people, but you're also shopping for a lot of other people on these apps, I would imagine, right? Yeah. You're just, you're, you're looking around and saying, wow, I like the way that one looks. Oh, that one has similar hobbies. So you're shopping and you're probably dating many other mm -hmm. people. 
Yes. Interesting. And okay. Yeah. There are a lot of people, well, I won't say a lot, but there are some people who have good, solid, strong, clear boundaries and values that are on dating apps, obviously, mm. but you have to really wade through a lot of hay in the haystack in order to find those people. And yes. when you do yes. find them, you will know because they'll be very clear that they're not comfortable with that and that they don't use the app that way. So that should be very clear when your filtering process, right. Of using a dating app, if someone is a standout person. Okay. Uh, so I usually advise people to get off dating apps. Um, but if you're on there, just make sure it's like a, like a peripheral kind of thing where your, your focus is on organic introductions, connections, and sometimes just not even like literally exiting the dating market so that you can take some time to detox from all of that, you know, it's like all the, the chemicals in your brain that look for validation and dopamine hits and all that sort of stuff. Validation is such an, a powerful, <laughs> you know, I would call it a drug in that sense of getting oh, people for sure. to, no doubt right? Constantly yeah. need 100% that interaction. Drug. Yep. So I think that social media is a huge drug for people. And I believe dating apps are, are another form of social media. And I believe that that is a way that people can get addicted. I mean, why work on a, on a relationship? Why work on myself? Why work on improving who I am and expressing my most evolved version of myself? If all I have to do is just get constant validation for the lazy person that I am right now. Right. It's just, if I can continually drug myself in that way, why would I work on myself? It just doesn't make any sense. So I, I love that analogy. I do. I do actually support using social media to vet though. I find it's a mm, better tool. Okay. I met, I met Dennis on, on Twitter and I know a lot of high value, very healthy people who have, you know, made successful relationships, families, children based on meeting on social media. So I actually have a book coming out on that, an ebook and so that'll be a good tool for people and hopefully we'll encourage people to use social media in a healthy way and get off dating apps. So uh, I do see it a little bit different. I think mostly because you get a 360 view of a person. Mm. Well, I mean, it's not like exact, but more than a dating app, which is the sole purpose is to just, you know, <laughs> jump the line, <laughs> jump all the, you know, the prerequisites and connect yeah. um, physically locally. So uh, social media can be more of like a, um, an organic process of getting to know someone who shares your values and it exists in circles that you have mutual goals and, and principles with other people. And then it kind of just happens. The algorithm works much better on social media for that. Could, could you address a little bit um, the folks that the younger generation who has grown up with all this stuff, they often ask me, like, how would they go about, like, they have no idea of how to go to, like, a, you know, a museum, or a bar, a restaurant, uh, you know, wherever to just have that intimate contact with somebody to say, hi, how are you? I am such and such. They seem to have no idea to do that. So their whole lives revolve around these dating apps. Yeah. But outside of the dating app, they literally have no idea what to do to go meet people. And and that's that's the whole point of, of slowing down and exiting the dating market by not focusing on 
you know, that urgency of trying to find a mate, right? You're really just trying to practice. Um, I like to, to frame it as practice of just being single, like mm. single, single, you know, not attached or looking for, you know, mm. human interaction and friendly and social. So just practice doing that with everybody, old, young, man, woman, it doesn't matter. Just go out there and engage with the world around you and online because it's really becoming our, our real world, you know, for, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, but uh, yeah, you, so you hit the nose on the head. <laughs> is that the right thing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's a, I think it's a great point. And uh, you know, this is where I want to, I want to give some kudos to my co-host here uh, as probably the, one of the best single men that I know, because he'll go to a restaurant, he'll go to a bar, he'll take a book, he'll sit and read people walk by, Hey, how you doing? I mean, I remember uh, one time several years ago, Miles and I went to go see this movie together uh, that had just come yeah. out, Loving Vincent, um, about Vincent Van Gogh's life. Absolutely love, beautiful work of art. I mean, well, I should say hundreds of works of art that they turned into this movie. And afterwards, we go to a restaurant and everybody knows Miles because he frequents it. And women are coming up and saying hi. Men are coming up and saying hi. And it's this beautiful, slow process, this interchange. And so, Taylor, I love what you're talking about. Of just slow it down, have some time, be single, don't go search for something else, and be comfortable being a friendly person. You talk a lot about healthy masculine men and healthy feminine women. Um, and I think that's part of what drew me to your, I don't know if the algorithm just picked it up and said, okay, here you go. Cause you are interested in this kind of content or whatnot, but that's something that has drawn me to your content. Uh, can you define, let's start ladies first. What, what would a healthy feminine woman be? What are the qualities? What are, how do they express themselves? Sure. Well, I think the most important one to clarify is the feminine part. Okay. And a lot of the qualities that I do talk about would fall under various feminine traits. Uh, so it is an important uh, aspect to look at. Um, when I say feminine or masculine, I'm not talking about 100% feminine, right? right. People get right. wrong a yep. lot when, uh, and this is where I talk about the sweet spot and integration, because as we mature and develop and become more healthy ourselves, as we self-actualize and we're able to create, you know, this kind of, I call it the calibration because it's not really, when you say balance, people usually think 50, 50, but it's not 50, 50. It's right. I, I see it as 20 usually. And the feminine aspects and the masculine aspects are in both of us in men and women. And so a woman who is feminine is not hundred percent feminine. She's just more feminine than she is masculine. She's going to have those really positive feminine qualities that create the nice polarity with positive masculine qualities that would be complementary in the, the man that she's with. In this case, we're talking about heterosexual couples, but um, so yes, she's a feminine woman because she has learned to integrate herself with the feminine and the masculine aspects because women need the masculine aspects too. And what happens is, you know, women usually tend to get hyper masculinized. Like they have a focus in, in being guarded and being hyper independent. 
and you know they're taking care of themselves and you know cold and, and argumentative and abrasive and so that creates a lot of problems in their personal lives that's what you know see all these uh 30 something 40 something uh corporate kind of women who are type a and they're single and they just kind of give up on love or usually they'll pick a partner who's quite passive or they'll focus on just sexual relationships and not mm. like the full gamut of marriage because their their energy is far more dominant in the masculine side so they have to come to terms with their lack of fulfillment i don't try to convince those women to change they have to kind of find that um feeling in themselves, like they're not in a good place, like they're not where they want to be and they want to make some changes. And so when you try to embrace your femininity, you know, quote unquote cliche that we hear a lot now, it's just learning how to like feel safe in and of yourself, like how to be vulnerable. So vulnerability is one of the most important qualities a woman can have. It's the quintessential feminine quality. Mm. And a lot of modern women have resisted that, you know, they've come to a place where they're guarded and they don't want to be vulnerable and they're afraid. I mean, men too, right? Like, because men need vulnerability to a certain extent as well. It just looks a lot different with men, but they've kind of taken on the same attitude. Like vulnerability is bad. Like vulnerability is weakness. It means I'm fragile and I don't want to be exposed to anyone who's going to betray me, abandon me, hurt me. So they are not vulnerable and that's very unattractive to healthy men to have a woman who is not willing or capable of uh, accessing that vulnerability. I call it like catnip for men. Like a vulnerable woman uh, is I such like an that. attractive thing. I like yeah. that. Can, I take to, can I take you to task for just a second? Because I noticed Absolutely. a lot of what I read, you use the word nuance and I love that word. I, I love the word nuance. I think we live in an age now where you really need to nuance things. Yes. Could you break vulnerability down and really kind of yeah. take it to it and to just so our listeners have an idea because there's a generality of a general notion of what vulnerability is. But I think in nuancing it, it, it becomes we can break it up a little more and fine tune what it actually is. No, that's a good point. I've been trying to do that a lot lately because it's one of those evergreen concepts. Like I have to talk about it over and over again to clarify this for, for people. And the way that I can best reframe it is to consider vulnerability, emotional availability. Mm, right? Beautiful it, way it, to look at it. Yeah. Yes. It's as simple as that. You're, you're not like, you know, uh, a sap. You're not like a weakling. You're not um, needing rescuing. It's your like fragility. It's not fragility. It's the ability to connect emotionally and let your guard down enough to connect with another person. And obviously you need to feel that you're safe to do so. Yeah. So you do have to have some kind of self-awareness and vetting skills in order to assess when that's appropriate. But generally speaking, um, vulnerability is, yeah, it's about accessibility uh, so being emotionally intelligent, and that requires you to be self-aware with yourself and regulate your own emotions. So that's right, so you have to be vulnerable to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I really like how you uh, uh, define that. Is that emotional availability? Because whatever that looks like, um, 
today could be different tomorrow, depending on the circumstances or the situation. What is, who was it? Uh, I can't remember the author that uh, brought it up, but this is a, a phrase that my wife and I use often is, you know, what is alive in you right now? And what, and, and being able to recognize what's alive in you, sometimes that's sadness, sometimes that's happiness, sometimes it's anger, frustration, there's a, there's a wide range of emotion there. But then also understanding what, at what level, right? If I feel a sense of sadness, or I feel happiness, or I feel anger, or I feel uh, joy, or whatever it is, it's not that it's always turned up to 10 or 11, right? I might feel that at a five. And that's what's alive in me right now. So I love this idea of being emotionally available, not only with what's alive in you, but also what's alive in the other person, because I think that that is a critical part of that overall emotional intelligence. And, uh, you know, it's not just self-awareness, it's awareness of the social situation, it's an awareness of the other person. So if I'm hearing you right, this emotional availability or vulnerability is a quintessential piece of that, that, that true feminine uh, expression that you talk about, this healthy feminine woman. Yes. So this is where people usually, you know, they get sort of uh, resistant is, well, men can't be like that. If that's a, you know, a feminine trait, men shouldn't have a feminine side. So it's hard to talk about one without the other. And I just want to make sure that we hit this point because again, men will have the reverse uh, constellation or, or calibration, right? So a man would be like 80%, a healthy man would be 80% masculine qualities, healthy masculine qualities, and 20% feminine qualities. If you want to consider emotional availability of feminine quality, yes, that's absolutely necessary for the health and vitality of a relationship, any relationship, not just your spouse, but with your children, with your parents, like you have Mm. to be emotionally available in order to be a functional human being. Right. Like, and otherwise you're just a robot and you know what, maybe you would be a good soldier in war, but you're not going to be an effective, you know, friend or family member or spouse if you don't have that ability. So the key, the, <laughs> the aim is not to make masculine men that don't have any of those qualities. It's that you want to make sure that they have a majority of the healthy masculine traits and yeah. have like that mature, integrated, patriarchal masculinity going on. Yeah, that's a and great, great, great way to describe it. I love that. I, I think back early in, in uh, our marriage, you know, I just, I didn't understand some of the things that were alive in me. I, you know, talk about emotional availability. I was, it, it was all just, yep, I'm good. I, you know, I'm resilient. I'm tough. I'll get through this. And I would just take everything, hold it in, the stress, the pressure, all of the stuff. And then every once in a while, just burst out in these, you know, uh, moments of frustration or, or anger or whatever. And so I can't say that I was really emotionally available to myself or to anybody else at that time. And so part of what I had to work on was just becoming aware of what's alive inside of me, not pushing those things aside, not um, ignoring them, and also not ignoring what was alive in my wife at the time. You know, if she needed to talk about something, I need to be aware of that and be open to that. So I'm, I'm with you 100%. I love the whole 80-20 concept. How do you describe a healthy masculine man? What does that look like? 
Well, one of the main the number one component is competence. Um, you know, and that can be in a lot of different areas, right? Like you can be competent in the bedroom, you can be competent with the wealth and finances, you can be competent in protection, yeah. uh, and also leadership is like the most important thing. So competence overall, that even if you don't know how to do something, you have that ability to get up and learn how to do it or figure it out. You know, you have that that attitude that you can lead, uh, well, attitude and behavior. So it's not just all right. talk, but right. mostly it's just the way that you function. And um, a, a lot of uh, people f- talk about frame in my circles and frame is a very misunderstood, another one, misunderstood term. And the way that I teach it is frame is about leadership. And if you can lead yourself effectively, as a man, right, in particular, then you're going to be able to regulate your emotions. So I also see stoicism as emotional regulation, not emotional numbing. And so a a healthy masculine man who exudes leadership, healthy leadership, he's able to regulate his emotions and hold his frame, which I also think has a huge component of dignity included in that. So frame is to me, leadership plus dignity. So even in the worst case scenario, um, like if there's some kind of threat happening or someone who has authority, because authority, you know, if you're in a position where you don't have power and so somebody has authority over you, you can still have frame, even if you don't have authority. So frame or, you know, leadership, masculine leadership is not about control. It's about being able to have that sense of dignity that even in the worst case scenario, you can hold it together and not fall apart or lash out and lose control of your emotions because you know, you're know you defensive or you're offended because someone is trying to control you or they're making slights or whatever the case may be, right? Yeah. So that frame, that's why dignity plays an important part in that for me and how I teach it. Great way of describing it. I, I, I'm resonating with that character competence and and really the ability to lead yourself. Uh, one of the things that I do when I go speak to companies about leadership is uh, you talk to them about that they have to become a leader of self first. And if you don't have character competence, uh, you can't lead anybody else effectively. I mean, you might get away with it uh, in the short term, but the long term, you lose the credibility and the power because your character and your competence matters and your ability to lead yourself. It, it's not that example is the only way we teach, but if example doesn't match what we tell people, we can't lead. Right. And so I, I love how you're breaking that down. I'm not frame is a new concept for me and uh, that term is new. What do other people like? How are other people using frame? Can you explain that to me and what the difference is between how you're using it and what uh, others in your space are using? A a lot of people, basically, they may not use this word, but they're in effect describing control. And so another way to like, if you think about like masculine dominance hierarchies, you know, when men are in a room together, like the person who is more dominant uh, is the person with the frame. And so I, 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 I disagree. I don't think Mm. those are the same thing. Um, There is obviously a a part of masculine dynamics, like men, male dynamics and hierarchy um, 
dynamics that play out that's much more based on physical dominance, you know? Sure. And so yeah. that that is separate. But literally, frame is meant to imply someone who is able to control the context, right? Like as in mm. a frame. So they're okay. able to, okay. to um, manipulate. If you're a bad actor, bad faith actor, you know, then you would be manipulating things in order to get your way. But in a healthy way, it's just the ability to um, redirect things for a better outcome. Yeah. Composure, charisma, yeah. the ability. Yeah. Okay. I'm following you now. What a great way to describe it. What other traits, uh, when you talk about a healthy masculine man, what other traits do they exhibit? Well, confidence is very important. I, you know, it's not about bravado and this sort of false machismo or anything like that, right. but uh, that self-esteem has to be internalized and that allows a man to be decisive. So mm. decisiveness is such an important trait in a man that is attractive to a woman, but it also just really reflects a healthy man that he's not waffling constantly. He's not, you know, delaying decision-making too long. Obviously you think about things enough to gather the information to vet situations, right. but you're not going to just leave things up in the air and be ambivalent for a prolonged period of time. And this is actually one of the reasons why I, or how I explain that multiple dating is unhealthy for men because you're indecisive, right? You're hedging your bet. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because so, you're afraid. Does that just mean if, does that mean if you're looking for somebody, because I can see if you're looking to be in a committed relationship, I can see how mm -hmm. that's not healthy, but if you're not, is it still unhealthy? Right. I mean, if your goals are Good different, question. then it might be different. But um, in it's, I would still wouldn't say it's necessarily healthy, um, <laughs> but that's going to be a matter of opinion for some people, right? Uh, I think if you are... Give me a break. I would, I would, <laughs> I would probably use the word, um, and this is hard because I know it, it can create a lot of reaction, but immaturity... Uh, but if you think about it from a developmental <laughs> process, right? Like that's she more just of called a you immature miles. <laughs> yeah, she sure did. But you know what? Because she's so credentialed hey. and everything she said interesting, I'm going to take it on. I've I'm been like, telling okay. you this for years, so just take it, right? <laughs> she just validated what I'm, I'm telling you. I'm going to be vulnerable to this. Go ahead, Thank Doc. You. Your show. <laughs> yeah, receptive. I think there's there's room for that. Like just at least hearing hearing out a different perspective. And I mm -hmm. I, I get it. Like there's some, but there's some men that don't want to settle down. And and I work with men, you know, mo more than I work with women. And I have a very solid men's group that's been running for two and a half years. It's a twenty four seven group, <laughs> and we meet every Sunday. And they, some of them are in that space. Like they're, they're, they're not sure they want to settle down, but they're open to the idea. So they're learning my system so that mm. they can use it and at least pick the right person. They are definitely avoiding the liability <laughs> kind of woman and they are seeing several women. And so what I suggest in that situation is to have relationship, strong relationship ethics, be very clear and walk a line of integrity. So that's usually where we come to is, are you in integrity in the situation? 
Have you been clear about this agreement? Uh, are you communicating with these people or is there some kind of um, you know, live omission or lack of clarity that could be creating problems for you? And so that's why I say it's not usually executed in a healthy way because there's a, there's a lot of these nuanced behaviors that are lacking. And usually somebody gets upset or hurt because of that. Great perspective. And I'm just stealing that term right now. I absolutely, I don't know that I've ever heard the term relationship ethics, but I love it. I am, I am stealing that right now, just so you know, like, yes, absolutely love that because we have ethics in all areas of our life. If we are working to become our best self, our most evolved version, right? What is your lowest standard that you're going to allow in your life? I mean, there are just certain things that absolutely will not allow in my life. I don't uh, allow myself to be in certain situations around certain people that act a certain way for any period of time. Uh, there's a standard for my health. There's a standard for my fitness. There's just, there's just certain standards, right? There's ethics that are built into that and relationships have got to have those ethics. Oh, I'm on cloud nine. I am still on that one. Miles, you had a question. <laughs> so I just, so I create, so now we're talking about the ethics. I created in a moment. I had an argument with a, a girlfriend who was out. We were, you know, we were all hanging out and she's on a dating app. And I guess this would be dating app ethics. And she found a guy that she thought was compatible. She liked him and she got in touch with him. And then as when they finished communicating, she was still scrolling, looking at other guys. And I said, why don't you get rid of the app now? Because you found somebody possibly. So get rid of the app. You can always upload it again. And she argued with me. She said, no, I got to keep looking for. What What do you think of that? That Like that dating app ethic of you gotta find somebody, get rid of the app, throw the app out or, you know, unload it, uninstall it, go through the machinations with the person you thought might be compatible. Yeah. And then if it works out, you've got somebody, but you don't always have this back up in the back of your brain. What do you think of that? Oh, I agree. I would call it uh, sequential <clears throat> dating because <laughs> mm. <laughs> this has come up in some conversations lately because when we're, when you're escalating in a relationship, you know, before it's a, an official relationship. So you go through this period where you're just single and friendly and social and getting to know people like the very, very beginning stages of vetting in a global sense. And then when you make a connection that you're excited by, there's enthusiasm, there's genuine interest, there's genuine desire, there's, you know, budding, you know, respect and stuff like that. You, you have some compatibility factors, you know, you share values or goals or something. So instead of jumping to like people often talk about or argue that if you become exclusive too soon, then you're um, attaching too, too quickly that you're giving the wrong idea that you're selling yourself short and it creates problems, but to move away from that, uh, problematic thinking, I've been using sequential dating. Cause I'm like, you can just be a monogamous person who doesn't want to humor multiple people at one time. And so you're going to be making contacts or dates, whatever you want to call them with a person, one person in a sequential order until you gather enough information to determine whether you want to invest further and become more of an item. And so then it evolves into, you know, like literal exclusivity because you're choosing it. It's a promise. And then maybe, you know, a commitment down the road. But I think in th that stage, 
it's a it's a difference of opinion. And so if you can clarify that with the person on the other side that I don't like to have those distractions that I just focus on one person at a time until I know what we have between us and they're comfortable with that. And they're like, yeah, I like that idea. Let's do that. Then that's great. I think more people should have these conversations right off the bat. Yeah. It really is about setting expectations clearly at the beginning and understanding what are the boundaries? What are the, what are the things that people feel comfortable with? And then as life changes, how does that, uh, how does that modify or adjust or adapt? Um, you mentioned something earlier I want to come back to with the polarity between the masculine and the feminine. I, this is something that I have uh, believed, lived for I don't know how long. Um, I tend to live a lot in the masculine, but I have a deeper you know, feminine side uh, of, with my art, with my uh, meditation with, uh, coaching people like tapping into that intuitive feminine side. That's a big part of me. My wife is extremely feminine, but yet as miles wells well knows, because he was, uh, he coached her in boxing. She's a tough badass too at times. Yep. I was going to interrupt you when you said she's extremely feminine, except, except when she's throwing that left hook. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that's integrated. Yeah. And, the, and, and that's one of the things that has helped us to continue to integrate over the years is the fact that we, we understand whether it's 80, 20 feminine for her, 80, 20 masculine for me, I don't know where the numbers lie, but it works. And there's a polarity that, that, uh, uh, creates this cyclical exchange of energy between us. Talk a little bit more about that polarity, if you could. Yeah. And this is where, gosh, there's so many polarity coaches popping up <laughs> online too. Oh, and most okay. of them miss this as well. They're basically just regurgitating information and they learn from somebody else. And it's all lacking merit in my view, because they're mm. viewing it from like a two-dimensional space, right? <laughs> it's like this or that. They're not yeah, seeing right. it from the multidimensional, metaphysical, <laughs> like very complex sphere that it's referring to. And yeah. it's a fluid process that's constantly ebbing and flowing. So it's not an either or binary. Yep. And most people who are talking about polarity are referring to that binary. Mm. Um, so I, that's why I, I cannot talk about polarity without talking about integration. And mm. a person who has created that, you know, balance in themselves so that they have a healthy amount of masculine or feminine in them, then they're able to attract someone who is the complement to that. Yeah. And then you are able to respond to each other in a way that it's like a dance, you know, yes. so that, yeah. right. You, the right. combination of the two of you together creates a whole, right. Because you're, you're literally like the yin and the yang with the, the pieces forming like the full whole puzzle together. Um, but like I said, it's, it's, it's more of like a, I don't know if it's 5d or, or 3d or whatever you want to call it, but it's definitely a multi-dimensional process that most people can't even really comprehend. Mm. Um, well, you can't unless you're doing it, that, right? <laughs> yeah, but no, but you're, you're right. You can't unless you're involved in it. It's You're right. It's not a two-dimensional thing. You can't just write it on paper. You have to be involved in it because it, there's so much nuance to it. I mean, if you're going to create this polarity, 
there's a constant push and pull and an adaption and an adjustment. And like the, like you were talking about this dance, um, you know, we had uh, in our episode, I think it was 70 where my wife came on and we talked about this concept of um, steps to achieve great communication and a practice that we uh, uh, borrowed from uh, Marshall Rosenberg and his nonviolent communication. What we found is that the, the methodology works really well, but yet it is still multi dimensional. Um, and that multi-dimensional piece is meaning that we have to understand how that person is showing up, what's alive in them, what is alive in us, and feel all of these different things that are going on all at the same time. So I, I love how you're, you're talking about that. How do men work through from where they're at to get to where they need to be in this polarity conversation. Okay. So for a man, like typically when I work with a man, a man, if they're too much on the like negative masculine side of things, oftentimes those, those men will present a power struggle in the process mm. of coaching because they're not receptive. Oh, they don't have okay. enough of those um, feminine qualities in order to even let me in. Mm. <laughs> you know, they they think I'm trying to um, tell them what to do or challenge them, and they they that's where I think the defensiveness comes in and the, the neuroticism. And so that's an unhealthy man who needs to work on himself and his self awareness and really create that nice balance, which usually. Um, comes from leaning in on the other relationships in his life, you know, so improving your familial relationships, your friendships, oh, okay. really, yeah, and in developing strong, healthy, masculine bonds with other people, right, because uh, that's so important and lacking in, in today's society. So a lot of men have these unmet core needs and they just sort of compensate for them in, in unhealthy ways so that's one, one aspect, right? Those kinds of men, I don't work with them often because they usually vet themselves out really early, but then I'll have the opposite, right. which is the, the nice guy, right? Which is that that's uh, more well-known. I think these days is um, the really passive, nice guy, people-pleasing man who is too feminine. And the, that I think is probably the majority of the men that I work with. So they're, they're very dominant in the feminine aspect, um, but they're all, you know, really good quality men. They're high value. They're good people. They're, you know, they just have these Achilles heels. And because of all the conditioning that they've been indoctrinated with, and maybe their previous relationships were with more masculine dominant women. So they were, they had polarity in the reverse sense with those unhealthy women. And so unlearning a lot of that is very eye-opening for men and to um, embrace masculinity and to reframe it as a positive thing that masculinity in and of itself is not toxic. And it's right. important to give yourself permission to do all of those things that, um, yeah, that maybe society looks down upon these days, but without losing this other side. So I have some men in my group, for instance, who, like you said, they have creative sides. So some of them like to cook or they make mm. pastries or they're artists. 
and so it, you're encouraging that aspect as well, but knowing that you have to balance that out with some yang activities, I call it. So the yin stuff mm. is the more feminine, the, yeah. the masculine is the yang. And that's one really concrete way. If you do an inventory, how many, like what yin activities do you do in your life and what yang activities? And if it's, because it shouldn't be like 50, 50, right? So your yin activities, yeah, it should be like, if we were using 20% yin activities in your life, 80% yang. But if you take an inventory and you realize, oh my God, all my activities are yin and I don't have very many yang, then let's start with that. Even if it feels awkward, like you don't have the skill set. Go to BJJ, go, yeah. you know, weight lift, weightlifting, uh, whatever, whatever it is, you know, shoot guns. You know, <laughs> it might seem arbitrary at first, but you have to work that muscle and you have to also, we do the physiological aspect too, um, of just doing your blood work, making sure your testosterone is, is on the healthy range and work towards optimizing these things. So it's a real 360 health assessment in a lot of ways, right? I love that. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I look at uh, like my son and growing up as I was raised, we were raising him with two uh, older sisters. There were times where he would be a little bit too sensitive. I'm like, all right, dude, let's go hop in the car. And we'd go uh, hop in the Porsche, go for a loud drive where the top's down and we're rocking out to the music and the, the, uh, engine is loud or it just, you know, those types of activities. I'm like, all right, it's guy time. Let's go. We're going to go do whatever the guys do. And so then when we would come back home, the he's calm, he's at peace. He's got this like, uh, just different light about him and it just, it worked, you know, I mean, it was just, it, it was great. And so there's gotta be that balance in there. There's gotta be that, that strong, piece in there. I want to come back to something you said just a minute ago when you said that part of the growth and the progression that has to happen with developing the masculinity in some of these men who might be a little bit more um, extreme on the feminine side is developing the ancillary or the other relationships in their life. So being a brother or some of these other places, why is that so important? Well, because you need to have that uh, oxytocin, you need to have the, the comfort and the ease. And so, uh, the feminine aspect of connection, right. Mm, um, okay. but th those men in particular are usually looking for, you know, that validation from women. And so then they put themselves in a predicament because they're needy. Right. Yeah. And instead of being needy, a, a woman in a romantic sense, they can get that need met from the right people, from the secure attachment that are healthy in their lives. And, you know, I think that's an important redirection because a lot of times you realize that there's unfinished business or some kind of hurt, you know, something mm. that, that yeah. never really got dealt with. And so not only are you seeking that closeness, but you're also uh, demonstrating leadership because you're empowered, or if you have a coach like me involved, like I'll be empowering you to display more leadership in those roles. So, you know, you're going to look at problem solving or, or somehow communicating more effectively and, and helping support the person uh, to create like some kind of healthier outcome in your relationship, whatever the, the problem may be. So displaying the leadership aspects in those relationships, but also getting that fix of, of comfort and connection as well. It's a great way to describe that. I mean, I'm, uh, I can, I can empathize there. 
I'm 46, almost 47 years old. My oldest brother is in his mid fifties, late fifties. And we've really developed a, a, a great relationship over the past few years. Uh, and part of the reason why, it, or part of the reason why it's so fulfilling is like you're talking about, there's this connection, there's this dopamine hit, but he and I were never close when we were younger, right? Well, I was the young brother. I was the, at the time, the youngest. I now have a younger sister who was born six, seven years after me. So we never had a great relationship. But what has happened as we've developed this relationship later in life is it's allowed us to look at the uh, the way we grew up and our thoughts and our beliefs and coming from a shared background that wasn't always shared because we just weren't around. And it has been this beautiful connection that has allowed us to get those dopaminergic hits because we're connecting, but then also talk about, well, hey, what do you think about this? Ah, what do you think about that? Well, where did that come from? And like, he'll call me up one day and say, hey, remember when we were kids and this happened, what did you think about that? And we just have this, like we can work through shit together almost better than anything, right? Because we got that history there. So I'm, I'm, I'm resonating with what you're saying there. Um, Taylor, I want to shift gears just a little bit. And I want to talk about how you personally have evolved into the person that you are today, because you don't get to a point where you're teaching people vetting and you're coaching people on becoming their more high, their, their highest self, and their more, most evolved person with the level of confidence and credibility that comes across in your messaging if you haven't done the work. And that comes across in, in the way you message that this is not some theory you read in a book. You've done the work yourself. And so obviously the power that's coming through in your message comes from experience and not just reading. How have you evolved into the person you're, you are today? You know, I, I appreciate this question. It's a very powerful one. So thank you. Um, I happened to spontaneously write this thread on Twitter yesterday or the day before. Oh, okay. And I got a lot of, of engagement from it. Uh, you know, people that said that was very powerful and, and inspiring and, and whatnot. And, you know, we, we, Dennis and I have been through some challenging times, like not as a, like with family planning IVF stuff. I've been open about that. And mm. so I think that's where this came from was just reflecting a bit. And like, I like to transmute <laughs> the challenges um, that I face and help them frame them in lessons for other people to learn from, but also to clarify my own mental state. Um, I think that's really how I've gotten here. And that's kind of what the thread <laughs> revealed was I went through a timeline of my life and I, you know, use like, you know, gosh, like from when I was 12 years old, like I left the Cayman Islands because of a few reasons, but it was mostly because there was a lot of harassment happening from my peers that mm. escalated. And my parents were worried about my safety and it wasn't really a developed country at the time. So they wanted me to succeed in academics and extracurriculars and everything. So we ended up moving country when I was 12. And then the list goes on of like all the trauma, all the challenges and all the success and all the wonderful things that I achieved along the way, but clearly in a prolonged way, like my personal life didn't really come together until 
I was in my late thirties. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to showcase how, how some people are late bloomers. <laughs> so in my case, I was a bit distracted by all of the achievements being much more in my masculine. I was also a professional volleyball, beach volleyball player for seven years and lots of things that held me in this masculine space, but mostly achievements and athletics. Okay. And, and I had to face the fact that I had a failed marriage. I was a marriage therapist and I was well credentialed, but why, why would this happen? How could this happen? And so once that was kind of the, the you know, <laughs> the point where I really reflected and deconstructed myself after that, and it was a lot of work. And I also, you know, quit my job and started working on my own. And so starting your own business with nothing <laughs> and starting completely over with nothing. And I mean that quite literally um, is a life-changing thing. And it was you know, it was occurring at the same time. So personally and professionally, I just started from scratch and rebuilt myself so that I could integrate. And that's mm -hmm. what I was doing. I was making sense of who I was and who I wasn't, the parts of me that didn't make sense, the parts of me that were just people pleasing. Like, why was I doing all this stuff? Why was I chasing like all of these, all the success? Cause it didn't fulfill me. And, uh, I'll send the, the link to you so you can read. Yeah, I was just going to say we need to put that into the show notes because that I I love that uh, that story. What a what a powerful story to show this perspective because I think if people see you online, they watch your videos, they really hear what you're saying. Like I said before, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of resonance in in what not only what you're saying but in how you're saying it. And my experience over the years when I you know interviewed people, met people through life and businesses you know the ones that get it because the way that they talk just is completely different, right? There's a power behind it because they've lived it. Um, I mean, I could talk about basketball, but I, you, you wouldn't have a lot of power behind it because I was never a great basketball player, even though I loved it. Uh, somebody like yourself who's lived through and gone through this evolution, there's, uh, there's a lot of power in there. Um, Taylor, on, on the podcast, we often tell our listeners that they have to create some sort of disruption in order to move to their next stage of evolution. That disruption could be small, it could be big, but they it's better if we disrupt on our own proactively. Uh, if you were to challenge our listeners today and tell them some sort of disruption that you would like them to do, in order to evolve into the next highest version of themselves, what would it be? Well, they don't have to do exactly what I did and quit their job and start from scratch. Sure. But I do think having that period of, you know, unplugging from all of your obligations in a, in, you know, if you can do it, uh, taking a sabbatical, you know, in mm. that sense, taking Love a sabbatical that. and, Love and it. having that opportunity to reflect on how all of those attachments and ties and obligations are affecting you. And are they there uh, voluntarily or involuntarily? And, and recognizing that every like expenditure of your time and energy is 
an investment. And if you're not having any kind of reciprocity there, uh, maybe there are other reasons for, you know, that are motivating you to do that, which could be people pleasing or just, you know, feeling obligated, you know, like you're almost like an indentured servant in your own life. Yeah. So reassessing a lot of those things to discover um, what you truly authentically what matters to you. I think that's the, the the key piece is a lot of what we do in our life is a reaction. Mm. And if we can really get to the core of what matters to you, not what matters to somebody else for you to do, <laughs> then, then that can help you reevaluate your life. Because, um, you know, no amount of money or success or attention from the opposite sex is going to make you happy if it's not in the quality that you need, that you're looking for authentically. Right. For me, as an example, like, you know, I'm a woman, so it's it's a little bit different. I know for men, wealth (laughs) development is is a different um, motivator, but for me, it's like, I don't need to be a millionaire, like on my own terms. Like it's okay if I don't succeed so much that I make a million dollars, although that would be nice, but having a, 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 finding the sweet spot in my life has been the most important shift. So it's learning what that is and recognizing how to let go of these false pressures that we put mm. on ourselves mm-hmm. and figure out where we actually get the best quality of life. Cause that's different for everybody. We don't all have to be functioning up here. You know, you can think of it as like a lateral shift. Like we just need to uh, find what is our ideal lifestyle. And when I gave everything up and I, you know, physically met Dennis because we were betting on online for nine months before we met physically. And I put my remaining belongings in a storage room. And then we went traveling Southeast Asia for three months, not really knowing what was going to happen, but just trusting the process and vetting step by step. And that was, that made me so much happier than anything I had achieved in life or being on TV and, and presenting in front of the government and having all these awards, you know, and nominations come my way. Like that was great and all, but it really wasn't what made me happy. And it wasn't until I allowed myself to detach from all of that external validation that I really discovered what made me happy and healthy. So it's that health piece. Cause when I, when I talk about happiness, I'm talking about like that real health, you at your core, what makes you healthy. I love that. I think, you know, health, health, wealth, and happiness, those three things are, are important and everybody has to define them themselves. And uh, uh, like you're talking about, people need to do a sabbatical. They need to do a self-evaluation. They need to look at what the values are, understand what has come before has been good to teach you up to this point, but where you're at is not where you're going to be and that you have control over that. I mean, we live in unique times. We live in times where we can create just about anything. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about technology. Well, Dr. Taylor Burroughs, what a, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, uh, with our listeners today. And, uh, 
helping our listeners get to a better understanding of some of these uh, very, very important topics. And on that note, folks, it is time for us to wrap up another episode of the Evolve podcast. I want to thank my uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Taylor Burroughs, and my co-host, W. Miles Riley. Uh, Taylor, where is the best place for people to find you? I know you are just about everywhere, right? You're on Instagram. You're on uh, Twitter. Where, 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 where do you want people to go? I really love Instagram. So if that okay. suits you, find me on Instagram. You can find me on YouTube. My channel is slowly but steadily growing. Uh, Twitter is my like, you know, best platform. People find have found me on Twitter for years. Um, but yeah, I like the visual aspect of Instagram. So love to see you over there if uh, you want to come say hello. Great. And we will put all of those links in our show notes uh, so that our, our listeners can uh, get in touch with you and follow your content there. And hey, remember, folks, that it does take time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Evolve Podcast. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you haven't done so, please give us a rating. As an independent podcast, it really helps us get more reach. This podcast is part of our mission to help millions of people evolve into the best versions of themselves. Please check out our coaching services at evolve-cast.com or pick up some of our Evolve merch. Until next time, keep evolving.